This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Good morning. Good to see you here today. I'm glad to be here today. Um, thinking about the Croatia trip and uh, brings back lots of memories of me traveling overseas and doing very similar work and uh, can't tell you how valuable it was to have the knowledge of the people back home praying for me and for our teams. And so uh, I just would encourage you to continue doing that. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn there. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll put one in it so that you can follow along. Right over here, a gentleman over here needs one. All right. While we're doing that, let's take a minute and ask God to open our eyes. Lord, we gather here today for a very specific purpose, to come to hear from you. Lord, we would go from this place today expecting to take what we've heard and use it. So God, ears to hear and eyes to see, we pray from you today that we might fully grasp what it is that you have for each and every soul that finds its its thirst quenched this morning. Lord, we ask your guidance now in the word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 2 Uh, As you're turning there, I'm wondering, there might be enough gray hair in the room that you'll remember a movie called The Way We Were. If you haven't seen it, just thank God, okay? Um, If you have seen it, you know it was a torturous romantic comedy that I didn't even care about. But I wanted to use the title, so I had to mention the movie, right? The Way We Were. That's sort of where I want to take us this morning. Uh, as we begin to look at this passage, the way we were, how, where we came from, what we were. I'm the kind of person that likes to keep an anchor uh, in the ground or in the bottom of the ocean, if you will, so that I don't go wandering around getting into all kinds of weird ideas. A lot of us will say, well, that anchors Jesus, and I would say it's his word, and we could have a discussion about that. But the way we were, where we came from, who we are, who we have become, and how that sort of revolves around your work life tomorrow morning. That's where I want to take us this morning. But I do want to remind you in passing that we want to stay with this theme that uh, Pastor Tim has brought us into through Philippians, this idea of keeping your thinking straight. So this morning, we want to arrange around that idea, this idea of keeping your thinking straight about the grace of God. And of course, that's what the passage here in Ephesians chapter 2 is all about. We are partakers of grace together, according to Philippians chapter 1. And so our thinking about grace this morning. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you... He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is 
the opening salvo and what are, in my estimation, some of the greatest passages in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul. And he says to us, and you, this is you and me, the Christian man or woman, boy or girl as you would have it, you he made alive. So this making alive is something that God has did, and it was because you were dead. Now, I just like the finality of that word, when you think of something's dead, right? I have this plant, and I planted it a few weeks ago in my yard, and uh, it hasn't gone so well for the plant. I, I'm, not, I'm not accustomed to losing plants. I'm, I'm, I think I'm a moderately good gardener, but this plant has shown uh, no hope of life at all, and I'm pretty sure when it starts crunching, it's what? It's dead. Now, there's no bringing it back to life once it's dead, right? It is dead. It can be still stuck in the ground. It can still have some form of planthood, but there's no getting around the fact that it's dead. It's done. And this word picture that Paul uses is exactly the condition that you and I were apart from Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses are the, are the idea of uh, willful, willful disobedience against God. I th this is important because you, some people, I think they think, well, you know, I wasn't that bad. No, you were willfully disobedient against God. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll be like, yeah, that probably describes, I know it describes me really well. I mean, there were times in my life where, and, and God had had a presence in my life, my whole life. And, but I wasn't following him. And I'm not even pretending that I was saved back in those days. And there were plenty of times I was like, I'm going to do this no matter what. That's a trespass. And then there's sins, he says here. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You have this picture of deadness because you are a sinner. You have missed the mark. The mark is way up here. I've always said that I'm pretty sure you could get to heaven without Jesus under one condition. You say, oh, that's not possible. Well, you're right. You'd only have to be perfect. You don't seem excited about that concept. I'm trusting that it reveals in you the same problem I have, right? I happen to not be perfect. And if you don't believe me, just ask my wife. She'll let you in on the big secret. All right, so trespasses, sins, miss the mark. You and I are dead. There's a finality to this idea of being dead, lost, done, over, no hope. That's why people fear death. Yeah, and you should fear death if you don't know Jesus. Because there's a certain finality to, to it that once you have died and passed on from this life to the next that's it. Your eternity is fixed and cannot be changed. Dead in trespasses and sins. He elaborates, Paul does further, he says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Apart from Christ, you, 
Well, I thought, and I'm pretty sure most everybody else thought, I was making my own decisions, doing my own thing, doing what I wanted. That's how great the deception really is, because it says, you and I once walked according to the course of this world. For all the thoughts of doing your own thing, which is the big saying of the generation of the 60s, right? You were doing the same thing everybody else was doing. Why? Because you were walking in the course of the world. The world has a predictable direction in which it's going. And that, of course, is operated by and influenced by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. Satan is a usurping ruler on the planet at the moment, and his stated goal is to destroy. He's a liar and the father of it. Lies are what he uses to bring desperation, to bring destruction to lives. That is his purpose and goal. You know as well as I do that he knows when the end is. Not the day or the hour, but he knows the end of the book. He knows that he's done. And so he is desperate to destroy all whom he can the prince of the power of the air, and he is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You, I don't know about you, but of course with, this, with the, what they've done in Georgia and some of the other states there in the South with regard to abortion, you would think that somebody dropped a nuclear bomb somewhere. That we're all running around now, this is the, the media and so forth, running around with our hair on fire saying, oh my gosh, the world's going to end because they, they don't want to kill babies in Georgia. Now, I could think of a lot of other ways the world could actually end and we could actually be a little upset about it, but abortion's not one of them. And yet, you would think, why is this? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying abortion isn't an important, an important issue. It absolutely is. So why the big to-do? What's that all about? I'll tell you what I think it is. I think we have a situation where, this, the, 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 where Satan sees the chance to kill innocents. I think he particularly enjoys killing innocents. And so his influence over people to get him to believe that a baby is not a baby inside of the womb and that it's just a thing and you can just kill it and it doesn't matter, that's the fastest way that he can get rid of humans so they can't be saved. That's his goal. This is his work. The kind of the thing that he's doing, the first John 5 uh, verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. What you're watching happening around you is the sway of the wicked one. Encouraging destruction everywhere he can. He is, in fact, a mocking destroyer. He wants you to believe you're okay until the moment you're not okay, and then he just laughs it off and laughs you off. He has no love for mankind. He's a liar, deceitful, subvertive. Everywhere he can, he can uh, subvert the word of God, that is his plan. I'm so fascinated by how subtle he is as well. Thinking again of this abortion situation. It, it, we have to change. The, as soon as we, you, you call it a heartbeat, it must be alive, right? 
If you say it has a heartbeat, well, then the, the logic follows on that it must be alive. And if it's inside a human, it must be a dog. Oh, wait. No, it must be a human. Oh, well, I thought I was losing you for a minute. It must be a human. And so when you think of, of, of that in terms of the language that we use to describe it, that gets people so upset. And then we had to change the words. This week, the New York Times let us know that it wasn't actually a heartbeat. We've had it wrong all this time. Can you imagine? It's really just embryonic pulsing. You know, this is the desperate, what I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate for you is the desperation of the world to hang on to this death that God wants to take away from every one of us. They're desperate. And so they come up with things like that. We used to be there. Look, verse 3. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. This is everyone. Christians are, not, are no different than anybody else except in one respect. They're saved. We're just like the rest of the world. And I stand before you today to say I was exactly like the course of this world. I was going in the same direction. The only difference is that God intervened. And we're governed, of course, if you, if you take apart this abortion thing that you're hearing about a little bit further, you discover that at least part of it is based in what Paul says next, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling what we want. I want to be able to do this without consequence. I want to be able to do that without consequence. I want to fulfill what I want. And he gives us two classes of things here. He says, he says in the lusts of our flesh, the needs of the body that you normally have that can just go wrong, can just be given into. You think of drugs and uh, eating, alcohol, uh, sex, all those things uh, in and of themselves offer no harm. But when the lust of the flesh gets a hold of them, they're taken to extreme. And of course, Satan's right there to encourage you to give in to what you want. Look, everybody's doing it. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind. So it's not bad enough that you have this body that's full of lusts and desires and things, but then stack your head on top of it. All right. Now it's whatever your brain can figure out to do with whatever you've got to just have all the pleasure you want. It's a, uh, it's a serious combination of things there. And we were, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. By our very nature, we were children of wrath. The way he uses it makes me think of a close relationship when you have a child and, and you have a close relationship. We were in a close relationship with the wrath of God, and that is the only relationship a non-believer has with God. A child of wrath. They are destined, and I say this to you with all gravity, because we're going to talk in a little bit about looking at the world and the people around you and remembering that they are children of wrath. 
God's wrath will be poured out on them. And I think there, there's some responses to that. When I say those words, I don't say it thinking, oh yeah, God's going to get them. I say it with a little bit more humility, I think, in, in the reality that there's this life and then hell. What a horrible combination. Now, the best two words ever written in the Bible. But God. But God. Hey, look, we're a mess. But God intervened. Look what he says. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. God intervenes in time and space. Why? Because he's rich in mercy. Uh, you know, I look at my own life and how God intervened there, and I'm thinking that this rich in mercy isn't a little bit of richness. In order for him to be merciful to me, he would have had to have been extremely rich in mercy. We don't even comprehend the riches of his mercy. And this is driven by his great love. That's what drives this whole situation is God's great love for man that he intervenes in a desperate, hopeless situation. Even while, you know, you look at the world today, even while the world is rejecting and mocking and all of that, what's God doing? Through me and you, he's still reaching, still trying to get the truth to people so they can hear that he's real and wants to pour out the riches of his mercy and his love on anyone who will come to Christ. Even in their worst condition. He, and, and here for us, in verse 5, look at, He made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Please notice the past tense of that. That when His great mercy was poured on poured out on you, you've been saved, you've been raised, you are seated. I like to think of it this way, my chair in heaven is warm. Because it's as if I'm already there. That, that should probably blow your mind, I think. You know, how, how can it be that we're here, but it's like we're there? Uh, well, I'm sure God will answer your question when you arrive. Why is this done? Verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. The plan is this, when we arrive, man, it's going to be big. It is going to be big. And we are going to look at the situation as it has unfolded over the uh, preponderance of time, and we're just going to be praising God. We're going to be amazed at what He has done. We're going to be triple blown away by what we see 
and what we hear and the stories of all of our brothers and sisters who have come to Christ in so many different ways. And we are going to, it's, it's just going to be this memorial to the, God's grace is going to be this memorial to the exceeding riches of who he is in his kindness and his kindness toward us. Eternity becomes a showcase for that. Now, in verse 8, Paul begins that sentence with the word for. And I'll tell you, I, I, every time I get a chance to teach, I remind people of this. That word for, when you see it, it means an explanation of the previous text is coming. So if you were going like, wow, I really don't get what this is fully telling me yet. I'm not sure I get his point yet. Then you see the word for in verse 8. It's like, oh, here comes the explanation. For by grace you have been saved. Now, he mentioned this as a passing thought a couple of verses ago, but now he says it because, because now here's the reasoning behind it. By grace you have been saved. There's, there's nothing else going on here except God taking action in a desperate situation. You and I have been saved by grace alone. And how did that happen? Through faith alone. Right? That's how I kind of keep them straight in my mind. By grace alone, through faith alone. What does that mean, through faith alone? It simply means that you believe in who Jesus is and what he did. You take it by faith that God has done everything that is necessary to get you to heaven. That's it. You didn't do anything. Well, I said yes. Okay. That's all you got? You said yes. Awesome. God did it all. He did it all. And it was all because he was moved to give to you and I unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve any of it. It was completely unearned and unmerited. That's what he says here. You've been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This is a free gift to anyone who wants it. You can't earn it. You can't get in the door. You can't go backstage and try to get it. Only by faith do you receive this grace. And it's not of works. It's not of effort. It's a free gift. That's what the, the contrast is here. It is the gift of God, not of works. Now, I took that not of works thing and I marked it with a red highlighter because I want to keep that in my mind. Not of works. I've heard well-meaning Christians say, oh, I just hope I'm good enough. You're not. Stop thinking that dumb thought. You'll never be good enough. That's why you need grace through faith. If, you, if you're coming to the realization you're not good enough, good. <laughs> why? Because you're going to be thinking, God's grace is sufficient for me. God is faithful. What did we learn in Philippians? God is faithful to finish that which he starts. Right? He's not going to leave us behind or forget us or any of that. For with grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? What would you do if you finally got a hold of something you did was good, and you knew it was you who did it? What would you do with it? 
You'd boast about it. Yeah, so God says, look, I got to take care of the boasting problem because they're kind of hung up on that stuff. So, not of works, that way you can't boast. There is no boasting. But there is a work going on, right? The next, the next uh, verse tells us, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Here's where the work's being done. It is God working in you by his spirit, changing you, molding you, shaping you. I, I can't tell you how many things I stopped doing without trying. And I realized, oh, that's God doing that. Pastor Chuck Smith and I had a, a thing in common. He didn't know this, and I, I barely knew the man. I met him once, so don't think I, he was like we were buds or something. But he explained to us one day at a pastor's conference about this problem he used to have. He used to hit his head, and when he did, it just made him fly into a rage. Now, you, don't, you really don't think sometimes anybody, a pastor would admit such a thing. But as soon as he admitted that, I went, man, I resemble that remark. I'd hit my head on something. It was all I could do to keep my mouth shut. But somewhere along the way, that went away. And I didn't have, I couldn't take any credit for it. I hit my head one day and I went, ow. Nothing came after that. I wasn't angry out of my mind. And that's God doing his work. We're his workmanship. See how that, that plays there? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has already been preparing the changes and the things that he has for you to do so that he can roll them out and you can walk into them and, and watch them happen. And guess what? If you, if you mess up one or two, you're saved by grace. <laughs> not by works. If you make mistakes, you're saved by grace, not by works. Now, don't get the idea that this is somehow some license to steal, right? Oh, well, God's grace is sufficient. Look out. No. You're looking for uh, God to do a work of change in you so that his grace is made manifest all around. I think of this verse, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The only works that we're concerned with now are the ones that God has prepared for us to walk in, not work in. God is doing a work, and we'll see why that's important here. Why is it important for us to think about this today? Because I want as Pastor Tim says, to get our thinking right on the issue of grace, to make sure we keep it right. And the first thing I'll note about this is that it gives me a correct self-opinion. Whenever my mind starts to convince me that I'm something or somebody, and I, I, I know your mind does the same thing, right? You have a few successes in your life, maybe, and you just is starting to come out a little bit more. You know, you didn't do that, and they did, so you're thinking pretty good about yourself or whatever. I try to remember these passages about the way we were. We have all come out of the same cesspool that the rest of the world is walking in, haven't we? None of us had a leg up. 
We were all dead in trespasses and sins. And when I think of that, and I think about, hey, I want this to help me have a a correct self-opinion, two things occurred to me. The first is, I should sense a great deal of humility about this situation. I didn't deserve to be saved. I was saved. And somebody else did that saving. I ought to be pretty humble about that because I didn't deserve it. In fact, uh, I'm amazed that God chose me. Why he would do such a thing just blows my mind. And it just fills me with a sense of humility that I, that I didn't have that coming. The second thing I think, I think it does for you when you look around you is that you see the world and you have a correct opinion about them. And when you do, it sort of makes me sorrowful. Not vengeful or hateful or they're going to get what's coming to them, but it makes me sorrowful because they can't see it. They think they're good. They think actually you're the problem. Now, that sort of makes me want to help somebody. But but the reality is, why wouldn't they think that? They're dead in trespasses and sins. So it helps us to correct our own self-opinion and how we look at the world. Gets real easy to look down on, on the world, to think that there's something less. But I just remember this, for God so loved the world. Yeah, that included me, and that includes them. And so we have to remember, even though you see some of these flaming lunatics on the television yelling and screaming, we have to remember that God loves them, right? Gets my head, gets my thinking straight. Second, I want to take that and walk it into this next idea, a correct opinion of other people. I want me to have a correct opinion, but, but then let's, let's develop that idea further. We're so busy sometimes trying to stay away from the world and, and, you know, unspotted by the world, which we're instructed by uh, Scripture to do, but at the same time, thinking about them as individuals, as people who are lost. They're lost. They think they're okay. They think they're, like I said, going in the wrong direction. But this text has this statement that stands out to me. Because of his great love. I'm saved by grace. Why? Because of the riches of his mercy and his great love with which he loved us. While we were still a mess. Those people out there are an absolute mess. But how am I going to treat them in light of this truth that we're getting shined upon us this morning? Now look, for a lot of years I was a pastor, pastored Calvary Chapel of Henderson over here. For the last five years, I've been working at a mine in central Nevada. Now I don't know if you've hung out with miners, but there isn't a much rougher crowd that I've hung around with for sure. People are in the middle of nowhere, so that makes them angry already. They're making a good, they're making a good wage, but man... 
they are given over to all kinds of things, just like I was. And so I, when I grab a scripture like this and begin to break it down in my mind, I'm trying to think, all right, most of us, 90% of us in the room tomorrow are headed to work tomorrow, right? If you're headed to work tomorrow, raise your hand. Even if you're day off, okay? See, lots of people, oh, yeah, I've got to go to work. It's Sunday. Do you have to talk about that? What am I going to do with a scripture like this? And my mind gravitates to, okay, tomorrow morning, I'm going to go and be with the same group of people I was with on Friday and Thursday and Wednesday. You get what I'm saying, right? You're there with them a lot. And where I'm at, uh, our, our turnover in our shop isn't very much, so I see these guys a lot. In fact, I work 12-hour shifts. So I see when I'm on, I see more of them than I do my wife. Hmm. Sounds like a mission field to me. Sounds like we ought to be thinking about it like that. So what would I practically do with the knowledge that we've just gained here now? Amongst a rough crowd of people who really don't want to hear about God, I try to do practical things that make God attractive to them like showing them respect. I work hard to show my coworkers respect, not because they deserve it, but because of God's great love for them. Uh, you, might, you might be working out, out in your mind with that special someone at work. How's that going to work? You know who I'm talking about, right? There's always one special someone at work. And they know just how to get under your skin, don't they? And you think they're doing it on purpose. Maybe. How could you deal with that in light of God's great love for them? Show them respect anyway. Remember, what are we talking about? Grace. Unmerited favor. I don't want to show them unmerited favor. I get it. Sometimes I don't want to either. But it's a step of taking the grace that we've been shown and offering it out. I understand their condition and try to be an example of a real loving Christian. And what would that look like? Sometimes we get all bound up in these Christianese sayings, you know, got to love one another. Yeah, how? How does that work? What practically can I do to show somebody who really doesn't care about Jesus that I care about them? How about a smile tomorrow morning for that special someone at work? How about a smile to them? How about a smile and a good morning? Right? Why would you even undertake such a thing? Because you're saved. You ought to be happy to be alive. You ought not to look like you just finished a lemon. <laughs> right? Now, I know going to work is not this, you know, oh, I'm so happy to be here. If I could afford to retire at 60, I would. But I can't, so I won't. Right? So off to work, oh, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go, right? I'm going to go, and when I see my coworkers, I'm going to greet them with a smile. And when they ask me what I'm so happy about, oh, what an opening! I'm saved. They won't want to hear it, but offering a little grace there. I'm not immersed in myself anymore. Really, you should be smiling because 
what all that you've been freed from? You're a slave set, set free, man. I don't care how bad things are going. You're not a slave to sin. You're headed for heaven. In addition to that, we can try to live out our work life according to what the Bible says, but not in an arrogant way. Oh, I don't do that. But rather, hey, I'm just doing what God's calling me to do. They may do that, but I'm going to do what's right, and I'm not going to be arrogant about it. And I certainly am not going to think, well, if they were just more like me, this would be so much better. They're dead. They don't stand any chance of being anything like you unless God shows the same mercy to them that he shows to you. Now, why is this so important? One of the reasons I think that offering grace like this is so important is this, is it, it's funny, you, the world is so, I don't know, sometimes it just seems psychotic to me. Because they'll tell you, hey, don't judge me. And then they'll turn around and judge each other in the next sentence. Right? It's, it's, it really is fascinating to me. They want you to conform to their beliefs, and if, even if their own don't conform to their beliefs, then they eat their own. It's crazy. You see the politically correct crowd attacking the other politically correct crowd, and it's like, are you guys all right? Because <laughs> your thinking isn't all right. So we have this reality out in the world and if they don't go along with one another, then they're an outcast. They're all walking in the same course. Why is grace important here? Because it offers a stark difference from that. I mean, it's radically different. When you show someone, someone grace when they're expecting judgment, they don't know how to handle it. Guy at work says, hey, man, I'm sorry about the way that came down. I really didn't mean it for that. I say, hey, no problem. No problem. They just don't even know what to say when you let it go. Now, did he deserve that? No. I know what he deserved. No, he didn't deserve that at all, but he got unmerited favor. This is a way that you can practically apply this idea of being gracious because the world doesn't know what to expect. I thought of it this way. Paul talks in uh, Corinthians about uh, their experience in their life being an aroma, a fresh aroma of life unto life. And I remember years ago doing a message on that passage and asking the question of the congregation, what do you smell like? Right? What does your Christianity smell like? If it were an odor, what, what would it be? Oh, wow, what was that? Or would it be something that's just refreshing to somebody? That just you being around, a smile, a kind word, a little grace, all of that adds up to something. It draws them. Drawn, we're told, to God by cords of love. There's practical ways that you can do that. And I believe that God wants you to be a vehicle for his grace. But this is, a, this is not just, a, we're not passing by this, but rather this is to be collected up and, <clears throat> excuse me, put into use. Right? Because he wants, he wants to show his grace. He's shown it in his son 
But Jesus isn't here. He's not going to come to work with you tomorrow and have the conversation you need to have, right? It's going to be you. You're going to be a vehicle for God's grace. And I can say this because of his great love. You know his great love. You've experienced it. You see it sometimes daily, his great love. And so now he wants you to be a vehicle for what he's shown you to other people. I think here in this text, you must realize that love and grace are connected inseparably. They come together. They're a package, if you will. Love makes grace possible. And again, let's break this down. Now, if I'm going to tell you, love the people around you tomorrow, you're going to go, amen, I need to do that. How are you going to do that? That's what I want to know. How am I going to do that? So I ask myself these questions. Look, I have these conversations in my head all the time. If you lived in here, it would be perfectly normal. Don't you ever ask questions like this? Like, you hear somebody say, well, we have to love one another. You're like, how? Give me, a, give me something to hang that on. Look, I, the only way I'm going to love others is with the love of God that resides in me by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that's going to even really work. Because sometimes my love for others wants to manifest itself in my hands and their neck. Really, Lord, I would be helping them. No. There has to be another way. I remember, you know, years ago before being saved, and this kind of a passage makes you think about those times. I used to hate people. It's like, can't we just move to the mountains? I used to say this to my wife. Can't we just move to the mountains and get away from all the people? It'll be just us. Well, how are you going to make a living? I don't know. <laughs> well, come we? I just, I'm tired of the people. But being his workmanship and having his love work in me, the love of God changed that in my life. And so for me, it was a practical change. And I thought, okay, well, what could I do? How could this how could I manifest love? I need, and I'm just going to give you one thing. How could you manifest love for others tomorrow morning at work? How could you do that? Or tomorrow morning, wherever you're going to go. I thought about God and his great love for us. One of the crowning beauties of God's love for us is self-sacrifice, right? He sacrificed himself for us. So, being the practical fellow that I am, I thought, okay, there's one thing, self-sacrifice. How can I implement that uh, in my life so that others begin to pick up on the work that God is doing? Well, I do it in two ways. And look, I'm not standing up. I'm not employee of the month, okay? So don't get that impression. I'm just another guy like you trying to work it out at work. And that's, let me tell you, that's a challenge. It really is. So I got to break it down. <laughs> I need it to be one or two things. If you give me a list of 10 things, I'll, nine of them I'll forget. I'm 60 years old. One thing, self-sacrifice. How, how could I implement that in such a way that God would be seen in me? Well, I do it this way. I try to lift up the people around me. 
instead of being that lemon-eating Christian, I actually try to lift them up, and I do it in a couple of different ways. I remember that it's not just Larry Palmer who's trying to get ahead at work. You can get into that trap, too, where you just accidentally step on somebody's head going up the corporate ladder, you know, whoops, oh, sorry about that. I'm looking out for number one here. Oh, God will take care of your position in any company and he'll put you where he wants you to be because that's, that's his business with you. You're his slave. And he's going to move you around where he wants you to be. And I, I warn you, that may not necessarily be where you want to be. But being selfless at work, what does that look like? Trying to lift people up around me? Um, I do it this way. I make a point to congratulate others on their successes. Do you ever do that? Somebody else has a great success at work. It, even if they stole part of your idea, that's grace, right? It's unmerited favor. You get a chance to lift them up. Tell them that they did a good job. Why not? Spread a little goodwill around. That's an aroma. That's the aroma of Christ when you're doing that. Now, be careful. I'll warn you. Be careful of the... You'll realize that people start being more friendly when you do this. And then your flesh, can, you can start going, well, if I do this, they do that. And so I should do this. And pretty soon you're in a whole different world. Right? We're talking about just showing the grace of God, lifting other people up, congratulating others in their successes. How about giving them the opportunity to share in your success? Do you ever include someone in a project or in an activity or whatever you're doing at work and then heap on them praise for doing their part? That's particularly cool. That shows that you're a team player and corporate America loves all that stuff. But it's your opportunity to give a practical example of grace to somebody. Lastly, in this idea of being selfless, the idea of uh, being helpful. A lot of guys at work are not helpful. Right? They just don't, they don't help me and I don't want to help them. And that becomes a spiral, right? But it's up to us to show unmerited favor. So I want to try to be more helpful of others. You know, if there's something I can do for somebody, you know, in, in, a, in our line of work, I'm, a, I'm an electrical technician at the plant, and so, and I'm mostly tasked with taking care of breakdowns, and there's more than one of us that are working on that because it's a large concern. And so, hey, somebody will call on the radio, hey, we need this over here, we need this repair over here, this is broken over here, and, uh, you know, this guy that they're calling will already be working on something, I know he's working on it, and I'm driving from call to call, I'll just say, hey, get on the radio and say, I got that. I'm going right by there. And so you do that, and you're just helpful. That's a bit of selflessness, and that's a bit of unmerited favor. And uh, I think it's showing uh, the love of God in that way. The reflection of the work he's doing in you can be practically had. So that's the way we were. That's the way they are. And you and I are the bridge. We're the bridge to that. 
When you go tomorrow to wherever you go, some practical things that you do, not to earn God's favor, but to reflect God's great love for them. And we want to do that so that they get a whiff. Yeah, you're familiar with the first smell of meat when you put it on the barbecue. I'm sorry if you're a vegetarian. I'm not. But, you know, it gets on the grill and first smell of that meat wafts to your nose. And you're just like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. Right? So it's the same when you catch a whiff of what the Lord's doing. You want them to catch a whiff of the grace of God. You can do it practically through selflessness, but mainly allowing the amazing grace that you have experienced to come through. Now, not of works, last thing, not of works, right? So in the morning, don't, please don't get up and go, today, I'm going to do what Pastor Larry said, I'm going to, no, would you please forget Pastor Larry and ask the Holy Spirit to do his work in you, right? I've given you some suggestions, right? The Spirit has given you some suggestions today. But tomorrow, ask the Spirit. And let's just do that right now. Lord Jesus, we bow before you this morning. And we recognize your great love. How, How you have done what we could never have done. We want to first of all, Lord, say thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you that you reached down that you initiated, that you are making the changes. Lord, thank you for your spirit this morning who does that work in us, changing, cleansing. We give you the glory, Lord, today. We give you the honor that you deserve for that. And Lord, I pray that As we sit here now, even maybe you're thinking about that special person at work and you don't know how you're going to deal with this. But you feel like the Lord's prompting you. Lord, I pray for that person this morning. That before the alarm clock wakes them up tomorrow, that you will have already done a work necessary. And they will, by your great love, respond through your great love. Lord, we look to you today to do a work in us by the knowledge of your word that makes tomorrow a sweet-smelling savor to a lost and dying world. Lord, have mercy on us. We fail, and you are all too familiar with that. But we open our hands to you today and say, Lord, help us. Work in us. Do your work to make us what we need to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.